Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Hey, there you are. Hello. Oh, how you been? Uh, isolated. Yeah. 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 Are you, are you living alone now or you still have a roommate? I am alone. You are alone now. I've, I've been alone for... Hmm. When does this... I think it's almost a month now. Oh, man. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. I, 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 you know, some days when I'm chasing my children around and they're driving me crazy, I, I think I would be a whole lot better off if I was alone right now. <laughs> so Anna's starting a new project today. Uh-huh. And Keith Lee has a new project because the weather destroyed Chattanooga. Yeah, I uh, yeah, he has quite the rundown he had there. Yeah, yeah, he's still fighting it this morning. So they they still are without power, and uh, since nobody else could show up, I thought, hey, let's just throw this link out here. And I thought you and I could catch up for a little bit, and then maybe we just uh, make the link public, and whoever shows up shows up. What do you think? Sure. Uh, so what have you been up to lately, Martin? I guess for everybody listening, they can't see your your face and the fact that we look like twins. So I guess Wait. we should say who you are. Is this the show? This is well. The show started a while ago. As soon as you showed up, the show was going. Before I changed my t-shirt. Yeah, before you changed your t-shirt. Okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's not video. They didn't see your well, we should, your. We should screenshot whole, whole body. We should <laughs> see. I, I gotta change a. I got to change the uh, layout here. My microphone out of the way. System. Can you even see it on the microphone? Uh, it doesn't show me on my thing, so I can't tell that we both have. Oh, it's the Gig, uh, gig Elixir t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, we're both wearing Gig City Elixir from the first this, year? The first year. No, this is last year. This is last year. This last year. This is a fantastic conference. Unfortunately, I didn't go to the first one. How was it? Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was it was a lot of fun. It was at an aquarium at the Chattanooga Aquarium, and uh, oh yeah, and a lot of a lot of great people were there, and and some good talks. I I really wish they had been recorded, um, but they didn't record that year. Uh, I think they just weren't sure if it was going to work out or not. So it did, yeah. And so then they came back again and had a second fantastic conference. I mean, yeah, I think, we I think both was, we um, both spoke there, so it must have been amazing. <laughs> Evidently, uh, yeah. I actually think, um, honestly, as as God is my witness, and I'm not that believing. Uh, <laughs> I actually think it was one of the best conferences last year that I attended. Yeah, of yeah. Years. Of course, I. Um, yeah, what up? I've been up to lately was the question. What yeah. have I been up to? Like uh I've been I've been keeping my running practice up. That's that's pretty good. So you get out of your yeah. flat though. Yeah, like uh so for listeners, I'm in the UK. So we got uh one government mandated uh like allowance of exercise each day. So we're allowed to leave the house for uh for exercise and shopping a uh, grocery shopping just the essentials and um and then we're also allowed to get medicine so how far do you run when you go out uh 5k I every every day uh no every other day every other day 
you're going to be like 60 pounds by the end of this. I have lost so much. (laughs) Or kilograms, I guess. Uh, Probably not 60 kilograms. That would be pretty tiny. Yeah. Like high quality podcast content. I'm on 75 kilograms right now. I don't know what that's in uh, pounds. In in stones or (laughs) inches or whatever you use there. Like I'm I'm from the continent. Yeah. <laughs> uh so what yeah. so what have have you been doing? Anything exciting elixir wise? Elixir wise, uh of course I work for Erling Solutions, so we got some uh, client uh that I cannot speak about. So that's interesting. <laughs> uh yeah, so we we still do our uh, our uh, consultancy business. Good. Good deal. So, of course, um, like transit, uh, usually I I used to go to the office and, of course, the lockdown has um, has, has changed that. So that's uh, the company we transitioned uh, really, really quickly to, to working from home. And, of course, most of our clients are, are not based in London. And so we got conferences er- or we got offices everywhere. So... Um, so the transition was kind of smooth, I would say. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I guess if you're used to being distributed, it's not necessarily a whole lot different. No, it's it's just you you don't see your your colleagues. I miss them. Hi, colleagues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so, uh, have you been doing any open source? Work like um, oh, I, I maybe well, no, go ahead with that. But I have I have another question for you because we've been talking yeah. about it on Twitter a little bit too. Yeah. Uh, so I have done a little bit of work on Tortus. I went to the um, Tortus is a MQTT client for Elixir um, that I have been working on on and off. But um, but I I haven't been that. Um, like on top of that project for a long while, unfortunately. So I I went to the issues and then I reassured everyone that I will for sure get back to working on it <laughs> soon. So that's why the extent of my open source work uh, lately. And I, I really hope I can I can get back to it. Those are d- dangerous words to say that you're going to be back on it soon. I, I'm soon. <laughs> I uh, even have a conference talk from last year where I said that I'll be on it soon. That was basically the entire message of the uh, of the entire speak. Was, uh, <laughs> I I did this project. I'll be back on it soon. I I guess now that that you brought up Tortoise, everybody probably knows that you are Martin Gosby. And if I say your name terribly, it's fine. Correct me. It's it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Good. <laughs> um, that was beautiful. So yeah, yeah. Since since we hadn't told anybody who you were, we never introduce ourselves. We just assume everybody knows everyone else's voices. I didn't even know it's this cool. was the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so <How are> you? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying my name. You got to say my name, Amos. Yes, I got Martin to say my name. Um, so I know on, uh, was it on Twitter the other day? I think it was Twitter. No, on LinkedIn, you put up a picture that you were doing some COBOL. Oh, yeah. 
what the heck got you to decide to try out some COBOL? Because I did that for a living. So I, every morning, my morning routine, I go to my computer and then I check out this TOB index. That's how you, you pronounce it, right? TOB. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking and, about. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it either. And I just saw that the COBOL is a thing right now. And I always try to to stay on top of uh, the latest and greatest. And I <laughs> I just I booted my Nix OS up and then I just installed new COBOL and then I got it working in Emacs and and then I I wrote Hello World. And, and is that all? Like I, I wrote pages and pages of source code and then Hello World <laughs> was uh like proudly presented on my screen. Nice, nice. This, this is the first step to all good software. Is yeah. is COBOL, <laughs> and and then I kind of lost interest <laughs> pretty quickly. Yes. Uh, and then I I wrote a hello world in Idris. Have you have, have did you do did you continue on the Idris at all? Uh, I started reading the book. So. Like Idris is something that has uh, been on my radar for a long while, but I'll get on top of it soon. What made what made you want to look at Idris? So I think for when there are some languages that are interesting because they bring something new to the table, or I think some languages are not interesting to me because they they just bring syntax, for instance. Mm-hmm. I got. Um, I don't think, and this is this is not uh, anything against people who are into Python or anything, but personally, I don't see that a language like Python has anything but the fact that it uh, it's <coughs> like English, and that's that's not uh, not interesting. Where Ypres has some some new new things that it brings to the table, such as uh, dependent types, and I I don't know any. Any other languages that has dependent types? Are, are you a are you a type person? Do you like types? Ah, like, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think they are nice, but mostly I work in Elixir, and and of course we we got dynamic typing in Elixir. And are are you a dialyzer fan? Uh it's been a while since I've run the dialyzer, to be honest. I usually, I do a lot of structs, and I uh, I let the compiler complain if I address something that isn't on the struct. So catching a lot of spelling mistakes, and I, I do a lot, a lot of, um, I think my pattern matching, I try to do it very, very precise, such that uh, like I got some type checking during runtime. But... Um, but not not doing compile time. Uh, besides the structs, uh, it's uh, it's complicated. I'd say. Well, I, um, I think I, I think I would like <clears throat> to work more in in type languages. It's just uh, all the problems that I seem to find interesting are soft real time servers, and there's no better runtime that's than Erlang VM. Or doing this kind of stuff. So, if, have you? Uh, so, you you work with uh, Robert Verding. Yep. So, so, have you? He's he does Gleam, right? 
Uh, no, he does. That's not him. Uh, I thought it was him. He does uh, Luerl and uh, Elfie. Oh, Elfie. That's okay. This play. So, have you looked at Gleam though? I know it's it's typed. I have I've glanced yeah. at it once. But... So that's that's Lewis Pilpel, and he okay. is, uh, he's also from London. To be honest, I haven't tried programming in it, but it it kind of looks like a kind of like an SML type of language. Yeah, I was wondering if that would would give you the types, like to be able to play with types, but still in the soft real time uh, VM. Sure. So the way that he goes about it, as far as I understand, and I could be very very wrong. We should probably get Louis on the podcast. He, you have a compile step, of course, where you do all the where he can do all the static uh, type checking and. And that is basically it. I don't think he has uh, figured out how to handle the message passing yet. And I think that is the that is the hard problem to solve. How yeah. do you how do you actually do, do the contracts between the the processes and the message passing? So a way you could use Gleam is to to build up a kernel in your program where you know it's uh, it's pure and it's uh, and it's type safe. And then you can, because uh, the smart thing he has done, he has um, made it as such that you can you can build during the compile time. You can build um, a module that's built with Gleam, and then you can call into it from Elixir or Erlang or LFV. Oh, nice! So you get that that interoperability. Yeah. So a lot of the the talks in the Elixir community has this. Uh, you got to have this uh, functional call. Um, it could be used for building the functional uh, core in your, in your I, program. I think it would be interesting to take um, the program that they, they do in Bruce Tate's and uh, James Edward Gray's book and yeah. take that functional p- part that they build that is their core and put yeah. it in Gleam just to see what that would look like. Yeah. That could be really interesting. Maybe maybe uh, when Graxio, when Bruce um, does the COBOL unit, right after the COBOL unit, he could do one with Gleam and Elixir together. Yeah. <laughs> so is there, is there anything else in your mind, or, or should we open up uh, the, the Elixir Outlaws pub to the world? Well, what have you been doing open source? Um, I have not been uh, doing much open source work. I've been working on... Uh, still, like for a while, we've been talking about it on the podcast a little bit, but an AI system that uses cameras. I've been working on that, but I also just got a new laptop and it's not set up. So, oh, yeah, uh, CCTV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm uh, I'm working yeah. on that and then getting the new laptop set up. And so we we do a thing in my company, Binary Noggin, called Noggin Day every Thursday. Oh, I think. That's uh, today. Yep. Yep. Where yeah. we. We get to play around and do whatever we want. Last week, I spent that time automating, um, uh, automating, updating the security certificates on one of our websites so that I don't have to do that by hand every three months or whatever it is that lets encrypt certificates go away because yeah. it's just obnoxious and I don't want to do it. So I, I, I automated that. So that was my day. So it's not always like exciting stuff. Sometimes it's just stuff like, hey, this is bothering me. I want to fix it. And, and, you know, scratch your own itch. And a lot of times my own itches are 
are minimal little things like that. Like, let's just get this annoying thing out of the way um, yeah. so that I don't have to worry about it anymore. Like so, as, an, as an Emacs user who has way too much uh, ELISP in his configuration, I, <laughs> I know that feeling. So I want to say like a year and a half ago, I switched from Vim. I've been using Vim for about 20 years to Emacs. Uh, or actually, I switched to Space Max, and then recently on on uh, the computer that I don't do day to day work on, I threw away the Space Max config and started my own. And I very very quickly put evil mode back in <laughs> because I, I think I like that modal editing. How do you actually like that? Because I've heard that it should be a pretty pretty good Vim implementation in Emacs. Yeah, evil mode is 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 really nice. Like the very basics of Vim are there, and it's enough Vim that you can do like ninety percent of what you did before and not even realize it. It's just every once in a while you hit something, you're like, "That is not Vim." Like that did not do what I expected it to do. But it it does a it does a pretty good job. And then the greatest thing about moving Emacs, so I used Emacs back in the day too before i used vim actually i used emacs a little bit but not enough to get into it a lot and the the really nice thing is elisp like the vim configuration language vimal or whatever however people want to pronounce it is terrible it's really terrible so uh emacs having elisp in there i feel like is really powerful um and i've been reading uh, a book mastering emacs yeah, oh, yeah. Um, so by Mickey Pearson or something. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, Highly recommend. And and I've been going through it, and that's whenever I said, "Okay, I'm going to try out Vanilla Emacs." But I was so frustrated because when I was trying to go through it, I'm not like through the book yet, and even some of the Emacs shortcuts drive me nuts. Um, so I was not able to get around and do anything really useful without like doing a bunch of stuff and messing it all up and then having to undo a bunch of things and then move forward. And I thought, well, I'll throw in evil mode for now. I, I think that the one thing that I miss from space max to vanilla Emacs is the cording of keys um, are seem a lot simpler in space max to me um, in that configuration than the vanilla. Yeah. I, I guess it's um, like a lot of, People use SpaceMax, so a lot of people have hammered on this problem of uh, finding the right keystrokes to do stuff. I guess. Yeah, I think but, so. Uh, and 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 I tried to pull like at, my big problem with SpaceMax was every time I w- would see something in Emacs, and I'd be like, I want this in SpaceMax. Uh-huh. All the documentation is here's how you install it into like vanilla Emacs and configure it. And SpaceMax's configuration is different. And yeah. I didn't. I didn't stick with learning SpaceMax, I think, long enough to realize how to translate from one to the other really well. And there was a lot of magic in there. And I thought switching to vanilla Emacs would would allow me to to learn a little more behind the scenes. And I might go back to SpaceMax at some point, but I don't know. Yeah, but well, I I basically let's see. I used to start a pack a couple of years ago, but I. I've been running vanilla Emacs for for a very long time, and my my keyboard setup and uh, key binding strategy is actually pretty close to what they have in Org mode, which is this um, oh, yeah 
organization mode on steroids that uh, can execute code and do shoot rainbows and <laughs> and whatever. I saw uh, somebody using org mode to do give a presentation, yeah. and and it was pretty amazing. So I've also the org mode manual is online. Uh, I was originally like, oh, I'm just going to print this off because I like reading things on dead trees where I can take notes on it and stuff pretty easily and flip back and forth. And I, when, I, when it popped up the dialogue and it said it was like 290 pages, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> never mind, I'll just read this online. <laughs> yeah, so I, what I mean by uh, aligning my key bindings with what they have not mode. Um, so when you type uh, control C, control C, um, like, uh, it's uh, can even it um, it does what you mean kinda in org mode, <laughs> uh, depending on the context. So I try to get that into every um, every mode that I that I have. So in Elixir mode, it uh, will it will prompt compile uh, mode, which nice. um, which allow me to specify, for instance, mix get mix steps get. For instance, and then compile mode will pop up, and then it will print the result of the of the fetching of the dependencies, and then I say uh, Control C, Control T, which will run the tests. And in Emacs, there's this uh, universal key, which, um, when applied, it will alter the function that comes after. So if you say key like universal key, Control C, Control T. In my setup, then it will ask me for what. Um, like normally, it will just run the mixed test, but when I do it with the universal key binding, then uh, it will ask me what I want to change it to, so I can apply stale, for instance. And then the next time I say uh, Control C, Control T, then it will remember my last selection. Oh, nice! Yeah, so like a uh, very elaborate setup I got there, but. Uh, and <laughs> I guess now that I've been speaking about it public, I should probably put it out there so you can study it. Yeah, yeah. Throw it up on on GitHub and take a look. So, do you do you use the Elixir LSP mode? I just um, lately I've been toying around with NexOS, which is also highly recommended. And I started building a Emacs setup within my NexOS, and I I got LSP working. Or, or Elixir. But I haven't been working on any major project. It just seems incredibly cute that you can you can you can go to definition and you can describe at point and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I re- I really like it. The, from the vanilla install of the LSP, the only thing that I do is I shut off the documentation that automatically pops up when you're on top of something. Oh yeah. That's um, annoying. Yeah, it's, I I like that it's available, but I want to like only open the documentation when I want to see it. Yeah, uh, because it was just in my way; I couldn't read code at all. Like um, if I if I I think if I was that kind of guy, I would probably use Visual Studio or something like that, right? <laughs> or IntelliJ, or it's just um, it's just distracting. It's more distracting than it's uh, useful. I I really like functions that. Um, it just takes what's beneath the pointer right now, and then like pop documentation when I when I apply a key. Yeah, when you ask for it. Yeah, yeah. Because if you 
like of course if you if you follow that approach at some point if, if you keep shoving the documentation in the user's face then at some point you will shove it in the face of the user when he needs it <laughs> i guess that's true <laughs> um so do you do you do do you do gui or command line emacs i do gui gui uh, i yeah. When I switched to vanilla, I also switched to using GUI Emacs because I was not using the GUI Emacs. Yeah. Um, I was using Emacs inside of TMUX. Like, I'm not that nostalgic for the, uh, for the command line, actually. I got, I got in a habit of it because up until a couple of years ago, I lived in the middle of the, the woods and had really bad internet. Yeah. And so if I was going to work with somebody else, I couldn't do any of the screen sharing applications because my internet was too bad. Uh-huh. But I could use a reverse proxy and a Tmux, and then we could share the terminal. Yeah. So I got used to doing most things in the terminal. So I don't know. I thought I'd, I'd tried it that way for a while, but it didn't really. Oh, everybody kept telling me I needed to use the GUI. There's apparently some functionality that's in the GUI that's not in the command line, but I haven't learned about it yet. No, Going I, back to the vanilla Emacs. Well, uh, inline images in. In org mode, for instance, is uh, I don't know if you can do that in some uh, terminal emulation. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. No, I I just uh, on my next OS I have chosen to go with Valent and then um, and then Sway VM, and then I I basically put a, a graphical user interface Emacs up in that. It's like um, so so. <coughs> Not nostalgic for the for the terminal, but I do like some some uh, user interfaces. Have you tried the programs like Quicksilver or uh, Lunchbar or Butler for macOS? Um, I used uh, Alfred. Yeah, yeah, and I used Quicksilver a long time ago. I, I like Alfred. I also found with uh, LSP mode, you can turn on a dash. There's a dash plugin too for Emacs. So you can cause it to open up dash documentation, which I actually like better than the documentation in the editor window. Yeah, but um, these launcher applications, they kind of, I think they bring in the best from from the terminal because typing is good. I think typing is good. <laughs> it's, it's precise. You don't have to touch your mouse or anything. Yeah. Mouse is uh, annoying. I feel like if I know what I'm looking for, that I know yeah. what to type. And anytime I have a, a mouse in my hand, it's because I don't actually know what I'm looking for. Yeah. It, it, it's like, I feel like I'm going through a bunch of file drawers looking for something when I just want to be able to say, this is the one thing I know I want. Give it to me. And you, if you combine the, uh, the typing with fussy, then I think you have something really, really strong where I like, uh, Quicksilver. I remember when I, I used that was um, you you basically learned how to to say I don't know uh, a program we own all the time like uh, Emacs. Then you just uh, you learned that you are activated and then you say EM and then enter and then it had this thing where you you invoke something like EM then you get to Emacs and then you had the action you could apply to it where the default action for programs was to open. And, but you could also switch to the action, and then you could say, find 
um, find in Finder, and then you would open Finder and uh, and be in, on the location where you had Emacs installed. So, so this um, this concept of finding a subject and then applying something to it is a it's a really interesting um, GUI, and I guess in Emacs you got stuff like Helm and also the one I use Ivy. Yeah, yeah, I also switched from Helm to Ivy recently. Um, yeah. And there were some things that frustrated me at first till somebody showed me how to turn on fuzzy search in yeah. Ivy. Um, Isn't that on by default? No, I had to type like exactly the characters in order instead of being able to like, you know, say M or A for app and then M for, instead of being able to skip letters, it made oh, me yeah. type all of them. That I was think, the yeah. default. I think you use space bar to if you if you if you apply a space then it creates this uh, fuzzy. Oh, if you do a space, so there's yeah. also a configuration where you don't do a space. Okay, and you just type, and it'll be fuzzy. I didn't know the space thing though. Yeah, I, that's, I think that's the reason I I kind of I kind of learned to live with it. It it is amazing how how fast your your brain can rewire itself to to these things. Yeah, I, I don't think that I've used like a file browser in a project unless I was trying to teach somebody about the structure of the project yeah. to to open a file in, in many years, even in the... Well, like, you've got to have that. That's an, like, if your agents don't have um, have that, then you should, you should perhaps consider Emacs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I... I just so I did get some uh, BIM users on. Yeah, I, I put a. I, <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. Uh, I did. I did put a link out on on Twitter and in uh, our our little um, chat that we have to see if anybody wants to join us in the Slack. Yeah, in the Slack. That I'm sorry, I meant Discord. <laughs> I don't know that anybody will show up, but whatever. I told them they got about 20 minutes. Busy. Yeah. Busy. And then and then you have to get back to your client work, right? Yeah. I don't I don't really have a whole lot else. I'm I'm all emaxed out. Yeah. You, you've exceeded right. my knowledge. Yep. It's like it's, it's just it's not too hard. Much Emacs. Too much Emacs. <laughs> it's not hard. How's the kids? Uh the kids are good. Um all being all home all the time, I think is starting to to grade on them a little bit. Did you homeschool before? Or? Uh, yeah, we did. Um, but we still like went places and did things. Yeah. Uh, I also have, I have one kid that uh, goes to public school. Um, so he was gone and now he's home all the time. And then my daughter's home from college. So she's home all the time. Right. And then um, I have one daughter that homeschooled full time. And then we have uh, a son that was three days a week out of the house at, at a different school. Um, he did two days at a homeschool, high school hybrid. So he goes to, to high school. It's an all boys school, two days a week. Then he has a, another gifted ed program with the public school that he did one day a week. And then he was home two days a week, but you know, everybody went out, even though we homeschool, like we had art classes that were not at home and, and were with other kids and, Mm-hmm. Um, different things that we did. And now we're here all the time. My daughter has been, she has, she was an Irish dance 
when all this happened and she's actually been going into our foyer on the tile and she gets on a zoom call with her dance teacher and dances. So that's, that's pretty funny to watch. Yeah. Uh, and then I got to clean up black scuff marks off of my floor, but it's also nice to see that, that people are, are trying to make sure that they're not stopping everybody's extracurricular activities in life and, figuring out ways to be able to do it at a distance. Yeah. It's like a lot of creativity going on with the, with the same teachers. And I think it will be interesting to see how, when we get out of all this, how much this stick. I, I did see um, something that I thought was, was pretty entertaining. Speaking of creativity, it was called cow to meeting and cow to meeting. And there's a company in California that has a farm. They have like llamas and all kinds of stuff. And they will, for a donation, I think they're a nonprofit. And for a donation, they will call into your company's Zoom meeting with a llama <laughs> or or whatever, um, and also give you tours of their farm. I thought it was pretty funny. Could we could we get a one on the podcast? Uh, maybe at some point, but they're booked all the way out through like partway through next month. It's it is, pretty crazy. It's so crazy with the booking. Yeah. Like I can see delivery trucks on the street outside. <laughs> and I try to go to the like the grocery store's <laughs> website and then they're booked out for like three weeks. Oh yeah. Um like, we've been ordering groceries and y- you you might as well go to the store if you can. Yeah. But then you don't even know if the stuff you need's gonna be there. No, I, I basically, in my strategies right now, I go once a week and then buy whatever, like if there's fresh, fresh vegetables, which I really, really uh, miss, mm-hmm. uh, then I buy some of that and then I have that for a couple of days and then I just um, have some frozen goods. Like spinach is pretty good for freezing. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's horrible. Like we, I guess we, we weren't really, I guess it would be nice if the, the grocery stores could just bump up some, um, some of their capacity on the deliveries by, right. by getting in contact with some people who has some, some trucks that are out there. I'm sure they're out there, like, uh, which has coolers and stuff like that. Um, such that they could just ramp up their delivery service. Because, yeah, that that would be nice. Yeah, like uh, it's not a problem everywhere, but like the stories you hear, like uh, right now, London is okay. I think we're like uh, on the on the scale of um, of the uh, infections. I think we're hitting the peak right now. Um. But of course, I don't know much personally. I don't. I really don't want to get this thing because it sounds really, really nasty. Even if you're if you're young and fit, yeah. Uh, when they say, uh, as I understand it, when they say mild uh, infection, it is a mild corona infection. It's not a mild flu. It's right. It, it really gives you some some damage. But I I'm not a I'm not a doctor. I just uh, I'm just a concerned citizen who who. <laughs> Who stays inside and protect the NSA? 
<laughs> yeah, I don't mind. I, I don't. I don't mind staying inside. I'm. I'm. Uh, I miss people, but um, I can make it. I'm not so uncomfortable that I'm like angry or anything. And I, I think it's best for society for me to just not be out and around people. Yeah, it's actually that's probably true whether there's coronavirus <laughs> or not. <laughs> I should best for society yeah. for Amos to not be out. <laughs> yeah, I. I had a. I realized something there about myself as well. <laughs> well, I don't know that we're going to have anybody else show up today. I wish they could hear us now, but we're not really live. So. It's not the live show. It is not a live show. It's semi-live. <laughs> it's indirect. Oh, I, I, I have been tweeting about this a lot lately too, but Steve Bussey's book um real-time elixir is out and a real-time phoenix and go buy it people should buy it like that is a fantastic book steve did a really good job and and the way he teaches i think is at least for me the style was really well done project was interesting and i and i felt like i was learning along with steve instead of him just telling me how smart he is (laughs) yeah I think that's uh I haven't read it myself, but the uh the thing about sounding smart is pretty like I think there's some things you can do to to pull that off and then like just start talking about monads. That's <laughs> and then bang on ninety percent of the room. More than ninety percent of the people in the room doesn't know and know uh, know anything about monads. And and They're the five really pressed out of the 10% that does 5% of them just know what the term is yeah. <laughs> and barely really know. That's me. <laughs> I spent a long time trying to understand monads and monoids and, and functors and like what all that meant. And I don't know. I, I think I kept trying to look at them as things and it's, it's really more like an object where you have like a behavior and state combined. Uh-huh. And and I think people concentrated way too much on type signatures for me at the beginning to be like, that's, I, I was like, what? I don't understand how this is useful or yeah. where you're going with it. Um, like here you have this handy diagram of A points to A mark. Now you know what a monad is. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Thanks I for agree. that. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so on the grand scale of things, uh, and being totally honest, do you think that learning Cobalt was more valuable or learning what a monad is? Yes. Like if I was if I was to start today and I, I had these two options on my career path. Well, wh- which one is going to make you the most money today is probably Cobalt. <laughs> um I don't know. If those are your only two options, I guess you need to learn to program. So COBOL. Uh-huh. But I, I think if you could really understand how like monads and, and all those types apply to your program, I think you would need to know a little bit of programming before you would get anything out of it at all. And then for the most part, I don't think you ever really have to learn it. Yeah. That you you can get a you can go a long way in a career with not knowing what a monad is. Uh, well, I personally, 
like 12 years ago when I started my career. I didn't know what a state machine was. I I basically came from a background where I I was building websites and I started doing JavaScript. And I was uh, concocting some some weird machinery where I I really think I I would have benefited from knowing formally what a state machine is for building modal interfaces, for instance. Uh, but as such, I I just I came to I came to make solutions without knowing what a state machine was, even though I was using them all the time. Right. Yeah, I, I I get that a lot from people too. Is like, oh, like whenever I was trying to learn what a monad is, like when I heard this term and people talking about it and I didn't know what they were doing, I kept trying to get them to explain it to me. And they would say, you're using it all the time. Yeah. And I would say, well, okay, well, show me where. And then they really, that's where it fell apart was nobody could show me or tell me. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's one thing about learning and teaching. Like sometimes I think more often than not, it's uh, enough to build up an intuition of how something works where you don't really need to, like if, if you know just enough of it and, and you can make solutions with it, then you're good Mm -hmm. for the most part. But necessarily knowing how, how it works down to the bits. I don't know if that, uh, like there's a, what do you call it? There's a point of uh, diminishing uh, returns. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't know that I would pick COBOL as the first language either. (laughs) What would, what would you pick as the first language for somebody who a, f- a first language for somebody who just wants to learn to program? Yeah, uh, I would actually pick something. Uh, I I know that it's it's frustrating for any big project, but I think I would pick something like like Ruby, Lua, Python. One of those, and I I really don't like Python, but I would still pick that over. Over something like Java. Java, there's just so much that you have to learn and do uh-huh. before you can get anywhere. And I think in interpreted languages like Ruby take away some of that that you have to learn. Because you can just you write the file and then you run it. You don't like write the file, compile it, deal with a bunch of compilation errors and warnings until you get it done and then send it out. And uh-huh. and then and then also like Java, you just there's a lot that you have to do to just print hello world. Yeah. Um public voice static main. <laughs> right. So there uh and and C like I, I grew up learning I learned with QBasic uh yeah. on originally and uh TI basic on the calculator on Texas Instruments calculators. Um uh, remember that from like uh high school. It wasn't yeah. high school in Denmark, but uh <laughs> I, I do remember like uh, learning something in in math class and then and just programming uh, uh, some some basic that that basically uh, solved the problem and then I distributed it to the entire class yeah. <laughs> and, and then nobody knew <laughs> how to do it they <laughs> just knew how to input x y and z and then <laughs> yep I, I I I did that. 
making making my math class easier um and yeah. and made games on the calculator too and distributed yeah. that to people yeah um what, what kind of game do i know you um i i had one where i had um characters on the side of the screen uh-huh. that would l- like look like a road going back and forth and That's get thinner and wider and then i had a, a, char- a character in the middle of the screen i think i used a uh upside down triangle mm-hmm. um that you could move just side to side and it would speed up and move in and out and you got points based on how long you could survive without hitting the wall yeah <laughs> like that kind of stuff but it was a lot of fun it got me into programming uh and, and i learned c and pascal but i don't think that any like i still wouldn't start people with c and pascal i oh. i mean i i think that it would be really cool if computers still came with like QBasic. Yeah. Cause, cause like I'll that's all basic. Yeah. Something like that. And, and all the documentation. Yeah. Cause that's, that's how I learned. I, which and is, QBasic like, wasn't even advertised on the computer. Like it came on the computer, but there was no icon for it. I just happened to run into it. I was yeah. like, what is this? And it had a help menu at the top and I clicked it and it had all the documentation for the whole thing. I just started reading. Yeah. I, of course, I'm of the school that I think that the computer should build up into the basics. Yeah, yeah, that would be you, you're you're maybe an old school person. <laughs> so um, so I guess my family we we bought a C64 second hand, and at that point the Commodore Amiga was already uh, a thing. So we were one generation behind, but that was good because then I got to experience the uh, the true beauty that the Commodore 64 was. And to this day, I am like my if I ever get kids, I would start them off with um, with an eight bit machine until they're like eight years old or something like that, and then they can get a sixteen bit machine until they <laughs> they're like fourteen years old, and then they're ready for the true power of of, of, of a 486 of a unix machine <laughs> oh, okay nice yeah, yeah i think the yeah, there's something about that those basic machines like the commodore 64 that they don't they don't do a lot for you so you have to make them do what you want but yeah. there's there's simplicity in that too yeah where like uh an instruction is basically uh, like you can, you can trace the instruction on the motherboard. It, it goes to this gate, and then like when you when you punch in these numbers, it will end up in the SID chip, and and then it will produce a sound. <laughs> like that's there's a beauty in that. Yeah, like you, you can understand it. Where there's no way to understand the and that's of course the I guess the problems that we have with our modern computers that nobody understands how the predictive um, uh, code execution works. And, and then we got all kinds of problems where you can basically uh, trigger to, to dump your private keys and stuff like that from memory uh, yeah. just by, just by visiting a website. Uh, well, it's, if, it, it amazes me when people f- figure that stuff out and, uh, because there's there's just there's so much to know now, yeah. In in order to get anywhere, but and then you look at things like machine learning, and that's just a black box. I mean, we understand how you build the box, yeah. 
But what happens once you get input and you get this magic output? Like that is all. Like, where? Eh, it it happened. I don't know. If this, <laughs> this is something I just ramped up or something like that. But there are machine uh, learning solutions that they cannot use because they cannot prove how it came to this conclusion. I could, I could see that. Yeah. Like, so so for a medical medical uh, like diagnostics uh, they cannot really um, at least um, rely on it 100% because well I'm, I'm not a doctor this is not me <laughs> I can see that it seems like a, there's a little bit of fear there like yeah. what if it comes up with the wrong answer there's no, no way there's no way to say if it can like how it got to that wrong answer or right answer. And so it's hard to trace. Like it's a system with no observability, right? Uh, <laughs> like, you know, what would be smart if we just had uh, like clouds and clouds of computers, just buying and selling uh, papers like really, really quickly. And nobody knows what's going on, but a lot of revenue is generated. Like, <laughs> Should, should we build a system like that? <sighs> should we? Or have we? <laughs> I think we have. We shouldn't have. Uh, depressing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I don't want to end on a depressing note, but um, I've, got, I've got other stuff i got to get done today. And apparently need to go read some more about Emacs. It's self-documenting, so... Uh, Control H I. Control H I. And Control H was it Control H K? Is that the one where you then do a keystroke and it tells you yeah. the help? That that one's awesome too. Yeah. Cause because I have people say, oh, just do this, you know, control H whatever. And and I'm like, well, what does that do? And, and to bring and, it back to the Elixir, uh, I think that's one of the one of the great, great, great things about Elixir is that it's kind of self-documenting as well. Yes. So, so you you got your in IEX you got B for uh, what, what is that? It's callbacks on something. So you can say B and the and a module that implements callbacks. Then you can get the documentation and you can say T and for type and I. Yeah, um, H of course. Mm-hmm. But um, I think this is this is one of the insights that. Uh, but Joseph Alim had, and he did it really, really. Like that was a really smart move because I think um, a modern language should be self-documenting, and it should come. That came later, but uh, but yeah, a formatter such that we don't uh, end up in discussions about how we should format stuff. Now we can just complain on the mailing list or or <laughs> about how the formatter is uh, destroying our code. There, there are things that the formatter does that I don't like, but I also am will still say let's use it. Yeah, just because I don't want to think about it. It's nice that if I go look at somebody's code, it looks exactly like it was formatted in the last thing that I looked at. Yeah, without but having to refigure. Cases where you want to, for instance, pattern pattern match on a tic tac toe game, where you. You want mm. to align them such that uh, in your pattern match you have the board uh, right. with the three times three, and then you you sit there painstakingly uh, aligning your code 
and then you run your form error and then it just goes, I see what you're doing here, but I don't like it. <laughs> let's yeah, so split it on one line or let's split it into nine lines. And <laughs> uh, could you imagine doing like a bit board implementation? Do you know what a bit board is? A bit board. Mm, like I know what it is, but could you please explain it to listeners? Yeah, so um, a bit board uh, often is used for like uh, chess engines, and so and you will store bits um, for each square on the chessboard. So you'd have a sixty-four bit, I'll call it a register, yeah. and and you would put like a one where every pawn is, and that would be your pawn, white pawns, and then one for every black, and that would be black yeah. pawns, and one for every. Um, night and you would store all these as separate 64 bit registers and you can I, do like ands and ors on them I to see as uh, bit fields bit fields okay yeah we called it we call them bit boards when i was using them um maybe maybe bit board is is more specific to something like chess maybe that's what they called it I, because it was chess but i, I can pull a, a module that i built for next year called the uh, bit field set which uh, which has an it was an interesting property because I was uh, one of the first projects I tried to tackle with Elixir was a BitTorrent client, and you you have bit fields and BitTorrent to to communicate between the peers which pieces you have of the BitTorrent. So uh, how do you how do you represent that in in a way that is uh, like fast to to execute because you when you're a BitTorrent client you're interested in finding peers that has a piece that you're missing mm -hmm. and and this peer has to miss a piece that you have such that you have something to offer to them and they have something to offer in return and then you and then you basically ask uh, can we please exchange information and then the the other peer will either accept or or not. I got her. And, uh, and the, uh, so I ended up building, uh, I was looking at Jesper Lewis's um, BitTorrent client for Erlang. And mm -hmm. I was uh, talking a lot with him because he was uh, also living in Copenhagen at the time. Um, yeah, so, so people who don't know Jesper, he is an old, old, old time um, Erlang guy. And he, if you go to Stack Overflow and you find a, answer for an Erlang question and and the username is uh, I give crap answers that's uh, not a crap answer it's yes I didn't know that was his username that is awesome but uh, his blog is really good too yeah yes plus rantings but uh, he had in his implementation figured out that he could store the bit fields in numbers because uh, then you can do uh, bit manipulation on on the number such that you can say, uh, like, I have this integer set the uh, uh, of this bit size, flip this bit, and then you basically have a you have a bit field implementation. If the two numbers are the same size, you can you can do stuff like um, like add them, and then you will get uh, a new bit field that represent um, all the f pieces that are in the uh, between the two, between, shared between the two, and you can nut them, and you can figure out which one has, which one are represented in this one that is not represented in this one. So this is basically what you want. So that is what my 
my project if you to go to my GitHub uh, Gosby slash uh, Bitfield set implements that as an. Nice. Did you did you ever ever complete your BitTorrent client? No, no, I Man. did not. I I made it so far that I lost interest. No, actually, <laughs> actually, I gave a conference presentation talk about it, and then I lost interest. Where 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 did you give that? It was in Stockholm. Oh, nice. I think it was 2016, but the video recording was lost uh, because the um, the SD card and the camera recording it was, um, I think there was a fault on the SD card or something like that, so they couldn't recover the information. Oh, so, man. So this is why you always have redundancy. You should at least have two cameras. When I first started doing Elixir, I saw your BitTorrent client, and I was like, hey, this is unfinished. I should. I I could do this, and so I started one and got to about feature parity of what yours is, and then also lost interest. <laughs> I just like it got to a point of where like oh, like the core of this is done, and now it's boring. Yeah, <laughs> and also I I didn't get to the distributed test table. It should be really easy because it's um, as I've been ex- somebody explained to me, it's it's like a hash table. It's just distributed. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a perfect explanation of a distributed hash table. <laughs> yeah. We should we should get that project up and running again. Um I think it was called Hazel. Um my implementation. So it sounds like Connor and Martin have both worked on this. Now you just need to put the two together and yeah. have two half implementations. Like just run diff. <laughs> So what are you up to, Connor? Joining the group today? Oh, I'm just hanging out. I um, I'm trying to. I'm working on um, meshing and the security therein, and I've come to the conclusion that I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, I'm basically waiting for someone else to do it for me at this point. Just kidding. No, I I have to keep. I've I've been digging deeper and deeper into the Wi-Fi the networking libraries that Linux supports and um, crying along the way. Have, have you found any of them that you think are good? Cause well, I mean, like networking support stuff is pretty terrible. Yeah. I mean, define good. It works. So it's good. <laughs> um, like I, I'm not going to say that I'm a, a snob for writing pretty or good C code or anything like that. But uh, I will say that WPA supplicants, um, is a handful to navigate. Um, it's a it's a beast. I mean, like it does a bajillion things. So of course, it's going to be a, a large project. And it originally wasn't even. It doesn't even seem like originally it was meant to be the WPA supplicants was the important part. W, uh, it's the same project as host APD, which is the um, access point version of WPA supplicants. So. Uh, your router runs host APD, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and WPA Supplicants seems like it was a spin-off of that project. And they're both in the same repository and they both share a lot of code and like there's a lot of stuff that's just like straight copy and pasted from one project <laughs> to the other. And um like some things work differently in both projects and it's it's it just it's it's got the feel of something that's been around for a really long time because it has. 
Okay. And also, you know, only no one ever adds anything to it until they absolutely need it. And, you know, they needed it yesterday. So they're just going to dump as much stuff as they can into it and then host, you know, the WK Supplicant team merges it and just calls it a day. <laughs> so maybe that's what uh, Martin, we need to do with Tortoise. You just, to keep moving forward, you just merge everything. I actually think I have some pull requests that I could merge, but <laughs> the uh, MQTT5 branch has diverged so much since that doesn't really make sense. And I, I think when I, when I merge that, eventually it will be a totally new beast. So <laughs> there will be new bugs and new quirks. Um, are you still... I haven't been following lately. Are you still working on MQTT5 on it? So, yeah, so... As I said in the beginning of the podcast, I recently replied to an issue where I once again promised that I will soon be back to it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the extent of work I've been doing for, for a little while. I wrote a MQTT broker yeah, in Elixir based mm-hmm. on a lot of what you had, and I got as far as MQTT 3.1. And then there was no MQTT5 client in Elixir available, so I never mm. bothered because I didn't want to write my own MQTT client to test my own MQTT server or broker, mm. I'm sorry. So then I gave up. I don't really have a MQTT server for uh, for my tests, but I do have um, I have a gen server that exposes a TCP port. So and then you give it the script that it will, and I use my encoder and my decoder functions for... Uh, oh, to encode and decode the packets. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So it, uh, I give it a list of, um, of packages that it either expects or dispatches. So um, I, I rely on if, if the gen server receives something from the client that it doesn't expect in this point of the test, then it will fail, and then it will crash the... Um, the test process, and I can see which one and, and for what reason. And um, when it receives something and the next command in the, in, the, in the script is to send, then it will send something to the client, and that's basically how I, how I test sources. Well, if I ever get around to finishing my, uh, my broker, you can use it in your, uh, in your tests. I, uh, I think I have a dependency on Tortoise, actually, <laughs> uh, for tests. Yeah. Uh, for the test environment, because I'm using it for for integration tests. So Tortoise can use your broker, and your broker can use Tortoise to test. And right. So if, if there's any problem in either one of them, it'll just be a circular issue. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it, at a certain point, we're going to make our own uh, protocol instead <laughs> of using MQTT. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a funny protocol. It does some, does some I enjoy the MQTT protocol, actually. I think it's uh, well laid out. Yeah. It has just enough stuff in it. MQTT3 is a little lacking. Um, I, I really didn't enjoy when I was implementing the lack of descriptors for errors, which MQTT5 solves this. But like, you just get booted yeah. off the broker, and it doesn't tell you why or when or you know what reason. And so that was, I think that was my biggest gripe about MQTT3 or 3.1 is the latest version of three. Yeah, it was. A, I believe a- five solves this. There was a simplicity in the three one one, where the specification was sixty eight pages, including the acknowledgement and the index and all that. 
where the new one is 120 pages or something. Yeah, I've I've only skimmed the MQTT five spec. I've not actually dug deep into it. And they have, um, I think the story was, and this is like this is how I see it, because there was a guy who wrote, uh, if you printed his blog posts, you would you would end up printing ten minutes or something like that from uh, <laughs> like nine hundred pages, and he basically just lambasted the uh, MQTT for lacking this and lacking this and lacking this and you can't you you cannot do this and this and this and then a year later mqtt5 is there and they just took everything and uh addressed every single complaint that that guy had yeah they basically went no uh (laughs) (laughs) no you now we got uh now you can extend every protocol haggard type with privacies, user-defined privacies, except for the ping. Because uh, if you could set user-defined privacies on a ping, then you could use the ping packages for everything. Right, you wouldn't even need any other... You would basically just have like a TCP socket at that point based on the ping messages. Yes. So they didn't add it to that, but they they add user-defined privacies to every, uh, every package except... Um, like including the um, the handshake and the what do you call it the the messages that goes back and forth when you when you send a message with a quality of service then the the response messages some of them have uh, two response uh, like reply messages you have to yeah, stand you I also remember when I looked at yeah, the in-flight messages. I also remember when I looked at the MQTT5 spec, I remember it kind of like basically having nothing in common with the MQTT3 spec other than like the names of packets. Like my entire my entire broker, uh, like gen server or whatever it is, I can't remember, would need to be like restructured entirely to support it just because of like, it used to be like one request equaled one response. And I, if I remember correctly, MQTT5, has like a concept of, I think like you said, like in-flight responses. So you can have like many, many different responses to one packet type um, or something to that effect. Like, um, you can only have, uh, so a quality of service true message will, like you will send the pub- publish and then it will send the um, send uh, in-flight message back that says, uh, received and then you'll acknowledge that you have received the uh the acknowledge that the server received right and then a- acknowledge all the things and then the server will send back a complete uh, package complete but that was also in uh the 311 um, and it it is an error if you receive something that is not um like you don't expect at that point you know, of course you got um you got support for multiple uh, in-flight messages. So as long as you, how much is it? It's a 16-bit um, integer for the uh, for the uh, for the package ID. So in theory, you should be able to have uh, some 32,000. How much is it? Right, whatever, whatever you can fit into a, a 16-bit integer. Yeah, but if you have that many messages in it in-flight, then 
then you probably have a problem somewhere. Yeah, uh, that's a different issue. You're allowed to do it. That doesn't mean you should. Amos, you're running around. What's uh, is it I, delivery? Uh, somebody's uh, alarm was going off, and I got tired of hearing it. They weren't shutting it off, so I had to <laughs> run over and turn it off. Mm. Uh, I also didn't know if it was showing up on here, if you guys could hear it going. Uh, actually, I could. Oh, yeah, I heard, sorry. I heard a little jingle. Yep. Yeah, but yeah. I enjoyed it, so <laughs> I didn't say anything. I the I think it's my wife's alarm for uh, lunchtime. Oh. So I should probably go eat while, while food's warm. That's the one thing about being at home is, uh-huh. is, is we keep having lunch. It's really nice. Yeah, I keep on having to uh, go upstairs and like stare in the fridge for five minutes. Like, oh, man, I, I don't know what I'm going to eat. And then I eventually just give up and have another cup of coffee and come downstairs again. <laughs> if I didn't have kids, that's probably what right. it would look like here. But my wife Yeah, you got to feed those guys. No, yeah. no, no dietary uh, expert here. Or, and this is not the... This is not dietary advice or anything, but you can uh, add butter to that coffee and some coconut oil, and, and uh, then maybe you butter. can add butter to the coffee and then, a little and bulletproof then you, coffee. Then you can put some cinnamon in it. And I I put some, I put cayenne pepper in mine. No, you when do I, not. Yeah, whenever I do uh, <laughs> bulletproof coffee that he's talking about, I put cayenne pepper in it, yeah. and sometimes a little bit of uh, cocoa. Just a, a cocoa flavoring. It's like a sugar-free, carb-free cocoa flavoring. Mm. And so it's like this spicy chocolate coffee buttery goodness. <laughs> yeah, I tried the Bulletproof coffee once, and it's not as disgusting as you would think. Right. Because it's not as disgusting as you would think is what you're doing. <laughs> like, if you, like if you... If you you will Imagine not die if you consume this. It should just have a star like on the packaging. Not as disgusting as you want. <laughs> uh, I was at the sewer processing plant the other day, and it was not as disgusting as you would think. Yeah. <laughs> Five out of ten. Not as disgusting <laughs> as you would think. I did not die. I guess that could be the name of the episode. <laughs> Sounds good. Not as disgusting as you think. I, I think we can stick with that. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to go ahead and, and get out of here, and I guess I will talk to you all later. See ya. Yeah. Bye. See ya.